1 St. Peter 3, 18 through 21. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put, death, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I uh, teach a logic class for middle and, and high school students in my spare time. And one of the fallacies that I always teach them is called the sunk cost fallacy. If you've ever spent any time in the world of financials, you've probably heard of this fallacy as well. The fallacy is when someone becomes so invested in something that they become less and less likely to give it up, even if it becomes toxic for them to hold on to that thing. An example of the sunk cost fallacy might be continuing to pay for expensive repairs on an old, beat-up, worthless car, knowing that in the long run it might actually be cheaper to buy a new-to-you car. Last week, we talked about responding to God's command with faith, and we defined faith as trust and obedience. Trust and obey was the main refrain of last week's sermon. Today, I want to ask why we should respond to what God tells us with that posture of faith. What makes our perseverance in faith different from just another sunk cost fallacy? And to begin with, I think it's important to remember that God's commands are never superfluous. Even if we can't always see the why behind them, even if we don't always understand them, though he usually does give us some hints as to why. Last week, our Old Testament reading was God telling Noah to prepare the ark. Noah had no external evidence that this was something that he should do beyond what God told him. Noah wasn't analyzing weather patterns five years from now and saying, okay, I got to get building this ark. No, he only had faith. He only had trust in what God had said. And so he obeyed. And today our reading from Genesis 9 is the result of Noah's obedience. That is his family and him getting off of the ark and God speaking to them. Noah and his family were saved from the flood because they listened and obeyed. So what's the point of faith? Why should we have it? To help answer this, we also need to remember the fact that, that Noah's story, while it happened, it's true, it's also our story. We can see ourselves in that story. We can read ourselves into it. And so just as Noah and his family had to obey God's command to be preserved from the destruction of the world through the flood, so our goal is to reach the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth through the ark that is the church by which we're saved from sin and destruction. Now, what do we mean by sin? That's one of those words that we throw around quite often, isn't it? Sin ultimately is nothingness. It's nothing. Sin doesn't have some substance of its own. It's not something you can go out and find in the world, like you can find the color red or a tree. No, sin is always the lack of something. So gluttony is the lack of temperance. Pride is the lack of humility. Lust is the lack of fidelity and chastity. 
And scripturally, we know that if we, if we lack those things enough, the end is destruction. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus exhorts us, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. St. Paul puts it a little more concisely in Romans 6, perhaps the only time St. Paul's ever more concise than someone else. For the wages of sin is death, he says. And we see this demonstrated throughout the book of Genesis. We have this flood story in Genesis 6 through 9. In Genesis chapter 18, we see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of us who are born, with very few exceptions, are born with what we call original sin. Original sin is not all the things that you do, not all the things you're guilty of, but rather original sin is the sickness of soul that makes those sins possible. And when we're born with that sickness of soul, we inevitably slide, or some of us run headlong, toward our own destruction. Experience tells us that we might lull ourselves into a false sense of security. We might bury our heads in the sand through self-justifications, but somewhere deep down within ourselves, we know that there's a great lack in our souls. We're not the parents we're supposed to be. We're not the children we're supposed to be. We're not the spouses we're supposed to be. We're not the employees or the employers we're supposed to be. We're not the friends we're supposed to be or whatever else. And so most of us identify with this tension that St. Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. He says, what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. And so it leads him to cry out in despair at the end of the chapter, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Surely we were created for more than the great nothingness that is sin. And I think something in each of us tells us we were made for more than that. Our very natures, while struggling under the diseases of sin, are still good because they bear the image of God, just like God reminds Noah at, at, in our reading this morning. This tells us that we were created for something true. We were created for something beautiful. We were created for something good. This is what Noah and his family experienced. They're delivered from the floodwaters. They step out into a beautiful world that's been purged of the ugliness of sin and made new. There's peace and harmony between humanity and and creation, as demonstrated by God's reminder that the animals will be held accountable for the human blood that they shed. There's peace and harmony between, there's peace and harmony between humans because God tells us that humans will be held accountable for when they shed the blood of other humans. And finally, there's peace and harmony between human beings and God, which we see through the covenant that he makes with them. Sin results in disintegration, the disintegration of the person. It, it results in isolation. But we are created to be whole to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to flourish as part of community. So those of us who who maybe don't experience this perfectly, does it mean that God has given up on us? Are we trapped on the outside of the vision, only gaining brief glimpses of what was supposed to be? No, the ruins of the human soul will be rebuilt, and they'll be rebuilt through the person and work of Jesus Christ. When our nature was scarred and made sick by sin, he assumed a human nature and united it to God, healing it. Our moral failings made us unclean and unable to approach God. Jesus became both our high priest and sacrifice through which we can approach the Father. 
Our milieu of fallenness has planted us in vicious cycles of domination, exploitation, and violence. Jesus reveals what an authentic humanity centered around an ethic of love looks like. And this is why baptism matters so much. Baptism transfers us from the genealogy of Adam, a genealogy characterized by sin that ends in death, into the genealogy of the new Adam, of Jesus Christ. St. Peter likens those of us who have been baptized to those who are saved inside the ark, because baptism makes us a part of the body of Christ. That's why we can say baby Silas is the newest Christian. He's the newest member of the church. Jesus is our ark. So when we're baptized, we're planted into a new story, the story of Jesus. And by that identification, we're placed in harmony and peace with God, his church, and creation. We should not think, however, that life becomes easy once we pass through those beautiful waters of baptism. We could probably do a survey. Raise your hand if you've been baptized. Keep your hand raised if life has been nothing but easy for you after baptism. Probably most of us would not keep our hands up. Though it should be said, in America, we have large swaths of the church that have been deceived by the prosperity gospel that tries to tell us that by believing in Jesus, we'll be temporarily happy or successful or rich or powerful. Friends, not only is this not a guarantee found anywhere in Scripture, Jesus actually tells us most of us will experience the opposite. Now, what's the first thing that God tells Noah and his family once they get off the ark? In our reading this morning, they're told, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now, historically and literally, this makes sense, right? The world has been wiped clean, and so Noah and his family need to repopulate the creation, But remember, this is our story, and this command is for us. And I don't think that what God is commanding us in this is that we should be like bunny rabbits and have as many children as possible. But I think that there is something we can understand spiritually about this command to be fruitful and multiply. Namely, that each of us is to increase in holiness and virtue. That's how we're fruitful. That's how we multiply. And we do that through sacramental participation, through prayer and devotion, and through good works. But this is not easy. It's not always smooth sailing because we garner opposition, namely from three places. First, we experience opposition from our own selves, our own flesh, through what we call concupiscence. Concupiscence refers to those fleshly and carnal desires that we often have. And the question is, what do you do with it once you get it? Do you feed it? Do you give into it? Or do you resist But when we experience that, when we give into it, we become our own worst enemies. Second, we experience opposition from the world, where we're pressured by others in our context to follow their examples. The examples of actors or sports players or whatever else. People who have no business telling us how to live our lives instead of following Christ's example. And of course, finally, we experience opposition from the devil, who in our epistle reading is described as a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And so in the face of this opposition is exactly where faith, the response of trust and obedience, come into play as we fight manfully under the banner of Christ crucified, as we said of baby Silas earlier, knowing that the struggle now comes with it a peace that surpasseth all understanding. That peace is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in the amount of money we have, the political power we have, the social clout we have. It's found inside a gift given to us by the Holy Ghost, independent of all our circumstances. 
And you might be thinking, this is really hard. Why would anybody sign up for this? It's a fair question. But the good news is that you don't have to make this journey alone. Our gospel reading this morning reminds us that God is like a good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one, or a woman desperate to recover her lost dowry coin. And these are just imperfect pictures. God's infinite love is more intense than any example our imaginations could conjure up. There was a a monk who was deposed. His name was Brennan Manning. And he wrote this book after going through years of struggling with alcoholism and a number of addictions where he finally begins to, to understand the vastness, the infinitude of God's grace and his love. And one of his books, I just love the title, it's called The Furious Longing of God. The Furious Longing of God. His love for us is so vast, it's so wide, it's so infinite. It's revealed to us in the fact that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us. And he saved each one of us individually at our baptisms. Or he invites us to be saved at baptism. And what's true of us at our baptism is true in an ongoing way. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And Jesus is our ark and our pilot, our helmsman. He's the means by which we're saved. In him we find salvation. He's the ark. But he's also the bishop and shepherd of our souls who leads us to the green pastures of salvation. And he bestows on us the great gifts that get us there. He gives us the sacraments. He gives us his very body and his blood as the manna from heaven. He gives us access to absolution through the sacrament of penance. He gives us the scriptures and the teachings and the liturgies of his church, which all point us further up and further into relationship with him. And finally, he places us in a community that he richly endows with all sorts of spiritual gifts for the mutual edification of the body. And so, based on the preponderance of evidence, we can join St. Paul's proclamation in Philippians 1, that he, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Every day we baptize someone is a great day. A number is added to the church. Heaven rejoices. Hell suffers a great loss. But it's also an opportunity for each one of us to examine ourselves. Are we progressing towards the beautiful way of being that God has designed for us? Do we trust him as the pilot of our ark and the good shepherd of our souls? It's never too late to trust in the God who died for us, who made us alive by his Holy Spirit, and who continues to guide us and order our steps. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.